Welcome to the Ben Don't Break podcast. I am Aaron Schweitzer, publisher of The Source, with our enlightened co-hostess, Laurel Bronze. This podcast is powered by The Source Weekly, Ben's locally owned newspaper. Listeners tune into this podcast to find out how our community is dealing or not dealing with the new normal. We are joined today by Michael Scott Stevens. He is founder of the Natural Mind Dharma Center on Century Drive in Bend. He opened the center in 1996, and today it maintains a full weekly schedule of Dharma practices and talks, introductory classes, special workshops, and teaching from visiting lamas. Michael has a degree in comparative religion, has completed graduate work in both theology and clinical psychology. He's a guest lecturer on Buddhism for Bend and, and Redmond High Schools when they teach world religion. I don't think I said that right. He's a guest lecturer on Buddhism for Ben and Redmond High Schools. So I gotta get that emphasis right. He taught a COCC community learning class on Buddhism for the last 20 years. Uh, today, Michael also works in end of life and hospice care. Thanks for joining us today, Michael. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So today, you know, Ben seems like a pretty supportive place for people who are interested in Eastern religions, yoga, spirituality. There's so many yoga studios in Bend now. Uh, but back when you started in Bend, uh, it was mostly a ski town, few breweries. You opened the first yoga studio here. Uh, what was the scene like back then? And, and what inspired you at that time to, to bring that to the community? Well, uh, <clears throat> Back in the early 80s, there was only one brewery. It was uh, the uh, Deschutes Brewery. <laughs> and uh, um, I'd always been interested in kind of what makes us tick. You know, what, what makes humans human? What, um, what inspires us to love and create good relationships with ourselves and the world? And... Uh, you know, I was writing papers on theology when I was in the third grade. <laughs> by the time I got into high school, I, I did a film on the individuating process, you know, how we find out who we are, um, you know, what makes us tick as high school students. And I went on into to college with that same idea. But I had a really intense experience with... Uh, um, my college years where I had been placed in an advanced science class and I was isolating DNA from a desiccated rat's liver <laughs> by myself in uh, um, one little laboratory. And as I lifted up this little glass rod and this piece of slime draped down from it, which was the DNA, I looked at that and I thought, Hmm. What does that really have to do with how we think and feel and, and whatnot? Uh, and then a year later, I had a, an experience that mirrored that in a completely different way. Um, my roommate, uh, who I loved dearly, uh, there were a bunch of us guys living together in an apartment complex. He uh, ended his life and he, uh, I was in the cleaning up process was realized that I was picking up pieces of my roommate, his DNA, you know, and there was this like epiphany. What is it that would lead somebody to this? You know, how do we look into the world? How do we um, have such 
what do you call it, um, rages in our mind that we cannot deal with that and would lead us to do this. And so over t that's when I went into the comparative religions and also- and Michael, how, how old classes. were you at the time? Well, this was my college. Okay. So that would have been 18 to 20, 20s, yeah, 20s. And uh, um, I started taking yoga classes too while I was going to college and got involved in studying religions from all over the world. And this is really a long story to answer that question, but this kind of created the foundation of what my interest areas were. Uh, when I ended up moving to Bend for a, quite a number of reasons, I realized that there actually wasn't much available uh, in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, in terms of uh, like yoga classes and stuff. Now there's a yoga teacher on every corner, but back then, right, right. not so much. Uh, Rajneeshis were still... Um, the energy of the Rajneeshis was still around and, and so on. And, but I started a, a yoga uh, center because I felt that there was a need. And uh, so I taught qu quite a number of years there, but Ben was so different. It was like, I used to think, I used to say Ben was at least five years behind the rest of the world. I think it's caught up now, but back then <laughs> it was kind of, um, I was concerned that it, yoga would be a little woo-woo. And, uh, and actually it turned out to be because I tried to teach yoga through the community college and they had to get the board of directors all together and, and in, you know, investigate that what I was teaching wasn't strange and crazy and, and all of that. But anything. Well, e even to today, you still have these folks that pop up and think that, you know, taking a yoga class is somehow walking down a, uh, a, a church, you know, aisle to some other oh. form of religion. And uh, right, right. we still hear that, even though oh, like sure. said, there's a yoga studio on every corner. Well, it just shows everybody has, you know, a filter through which they look at the world. Yeah. So, so um, the, it has, ha it's had to have been a challenge for you during COVID to um, continue to keep the Dharma Center moving forward. How have you guys adapted to uh, distance learning, distance meditation, things like that? Well, uh, we're transitioned from yoga center now to Buddhist center. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, the, the, uh, our center has been around about 25 years. That was transitioned after I started yoga way a long time ago. And, and our Buddhist center now is, uh, um, has a group of really dedicated people and so we were trying to find a way of addressing the COVID thing. And I went kicking and screaming into the Zoom thing. Uh, <laughs> I think we all did in some, <laughs> some aspects. Yeah, uh, but we, we, we do our, our, our events on Zoom and actually we've grown a little since, since then. I think it's because uh, there's a number of Sangha members that have moved away you know, our spiritual community. Mm -hmm. They moved away and now we have people from Alaska and Southern California and Colorado and wow. Chicago and everything that comes in. So that, if there's a silver lining, uh, it's made uh, some of what we do accessible to people that wouldn't be able to connect otherwise. So that's what we've basically done. And uh, uh, looking forward to getting back together in person though. Michael, do you do, you do guided meditations over Zoom for people 
in Chicago and stuff out of your center? Well, not really. Uh, Vajrayana Buddhism mm, is kind of kind of the odd duck <laughs> in Buddhist traditions. <laughs> you know, it's it's not Zen, and it's you know, so a lot of people think, well, this is Dalai Lama Zuma, da Dalai Lama Buddhism, yeah. which it is, but not necessarily how we think about it. And so when you get involved in the tradition, you learn certain practices. And so it's more like they're self-guided. Okay. So you don't actually lead a person through meditation, but the practices themselves are learned. And then you lead yourself through it. And then, of course, we do those practices together. Um, although it's, it's virtually together now, but we do right. those practices together. And the bringing together of the voices doing the same practice has a vibration that's really wonderful. And that's one of the things we've lost with the COVID because there isn't that one-to-one -one vocal thing. We can't chant together, you know, it's, it's, it just doesn't work very well that way. So, but we still do the practices. People have their practice book uh, and then follow along as I'm chanting. And so we work it that way. Tell us a little bit about your training, I mean, um, and why you got into this specific kind of Buddhism. Uh, <laughs> I have a very Heinz 57 variety, <laughs> if that can even be used as a term anymore, it's showing my age. Um, a real mixture of backgrounds um, and influences, but when I met my teachers that were lamas in the Tibetan tradition, um, what they were expressing seemed to be inscribed on my heart for lifetimes. You know, it just, there was an echo of something I remembered. And so I learned from them directly, went on retreats. And of course I drew on my kind of like scholastic background of things I'd studied before, integrating that. And for some deeply strange reason, people started asking me to teach and my teachers encouraged me to teach and poof, we have a Dharma center and people keep showing up <laughs> and I keep showing up and we have a good time. <laughs> Michael, Laurel and I were talking before, before the, um, the Zoomer started and <clears throat> we were wondering about the length of time that people um, do the practice, meditate. What's what are some of the like longer uh, deep dives that that you've done personally? Um, boy, because I, I think there's this like you know right now there's this understand you know people are getting apps and they're doing many meditations and then we were yeah. we, jumping into longer retreats that might be overwhelming and. I just didn't know how far someone like yourself might have taken it. I, it's kind of a hard question to answer from a Buddhist perspective because really the way Buddha taught, there isn't any place to go and nothing to get. And that's why spiritual practice is kind of oxymoronic <laughs> in a sense. Um, but that's the, the foundation of it. And so, there is really no deep to go. There isn't any place to find. But when we have a sincere interest in understanding the nature of our mind, 
and how we really see the world, then we will recognize something that helps us. Um, actually, the way they say it in the teachings, there's really no such thing as a path or ways in consciousness, but ways show up as your consciousness seeks to make itself understood. And so if, if you recognize a spiritual path and then start using it, um, the result is already there. So there's not really any depth. There, there's obviously a learning curve at the beginning, uh, but in Vajrayana Buddhism, a cause and result happen at the same time. Um, so in the, as soon as you engage, whatever depth there is to go, you know, go into, you go. I, I, I'm gonna. I, I think I followed you. I'm not sure. I can't know my listeners out there how, yeah. <laughs> how far they got on that. One. That's why this. That's why I don't even recognize. I don't even recommend this as a path. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, Michael, what do you? So, in your with with the people you're involved with, what do you? Um, how do you help them deal with something as large as a pandemic or the crisis that we're going through? I mean, people. I've seen the stats for people who are seeking spirituality right now, meditation, right. the numbers off the charts as people look to cope. And I got to imagine they're, they're turning to you for some, some advice on that. Well, they came to the wrong place. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell my sense of humor here. <laughs> well, foundation of Buddhist teachings is the law of impermanence. And that's one of the most difficult things for, for humans to deal with. You know, when, when things change, that uh, especially when we're not expecting them, if we haven't done our work in working with our mind and settling the mind, then it's very challenging. And so essentially all the practices are to help people settle the mind. They, it, they say in the teachings that if we act with an unsettled mind, we'll have unsettling experiences. Yeah. But if we act with a settled mind, all of our experiences will be more settled. I feel and, like there's a lot of unsettled minds right now. Yeah. Well, it's not only the pan pandemic, as they say, right. <laughs> it's the, um, you know, kind of the divisiveness and the political <clears throat> circumstances and things that we find ourselves in. But, uh, in the Tibetan Buddhist, Vajrayana, Tibetan Buddhist tradition, um, this is what is referred to as a degenerating time cycle. That time just goes like this. It goes up, it goes down, it goes up and it goes down. Right now we're in a down cycle where a lot of things that we've built up in the up cycle are breaking down. And so they say that there are certain teachings that are specifically geared to deal with that. And some of the things that we do is just learning how, how the mind sees change, you know, and how we see change for each of us individually. Um, we have kind of a habitual way that we react to change. And when you work with settling the mind, we begin to settle out those habits and then then change is not like the issue. It's just how do you deal with every moment? Because every moment changes. Yeah. 
So it's how to be present to whatever moment presents itself uh, with as subtle a mind as we're capable. And, uh, and that seems to be helpful to people, you know. There are a lot of ways to do that. Uh, we just express a particular recipe, so. You also have an offering as someone who assists with hospice and end of life care. Can you talk about how this relates to your spiritual path? Well, meditation itself is actually dying before we die. Now, that's why meditation is difficult. And what I mean by dying before we die is that all of our habit patterns of our mind are rooted in our ego structure. You know, our self-grasping, our, our belief that we exist as a solid, separate self. When Buddha woke up, he recognized no such thing exists. We are not a separate self. We're a vast, unlimited, interconnected self. And so when you meditate deeply, what happens is, um, one experiences a deconstructing of the self, a letting go of grasping, ego grasping, and so on. And so that feels like a kind of death. But in the, the Buddhist tradition, there is guidance when we have our physical death that is very similar to guidance of meditation. Uh, so people who have meditated for a long time find that the dying process is not so difficult. But if you've never kind of died to yourself beforehand, it's death can be very difficult. And in Vajrayana tradition, they have this book called the Tibetan Book of the Dead. It's actually the Tibetan Book of Liberation Upon Hearing. And this is a book to be read to a person who is dying, uh, you know, physically dying, coming to the end stages. But a lot of the instructions are identical to the instructions for living. <laughs> In other words, you live more completely if you die to the false self and you die more easily if that has already taken place. But if that's not, it has not taken place, there is still a way of, of helping a person ease through their death. And I, I was with my father-in-law, my mother, my father, I've been a hospice volunteer and um, now I'm asked to teach, you know, um, you know, kind of a Western version of this um, support for the active dying process. And I find that it not only does it help the person that you're with, it helps you to be with the person that you're with. And I got to, Mike, I got to imagine there's a little bit of, um, I mean, if you're doing hospice care, then yeah. you're um, you're doing that care with people who are not Buddhists or or of that faith. So there's some translation that has to happen. Yeah, that. yeah. It's one of one of the things my teachers have suggested to me is to make it to kind of demystified. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of what my work is. Um, yeah, it doesn't make any difference whether you're Buddhist. As a matter of fact, there are versions of the Tibetan Book of the Dead that are used in hospices across the country, but it's translated to make it a little more accessible to, to the, uh, the Western mind. But one of the uh, simple examples is that, you know, when we die, 
uh, they say that the earth dissolves into water, water into fire, fire into wind, wind into space. And there's something that actually happens to us physically and mentally and emotionally when each of those elements dissolves. Now, simply put, we're made out of those elements, you know, sure. that's what makes us up. And, and so when working with a person who's not familiar with the Buddhist lingo, for instance, you can talk about, well, we're made of elements. And when the element is dissolving, these are some things that happen. Uh, for example, when, when the earth element dissolves into water, that's when uh, people will like spontaneously begin to kind of tear up, but not mo emotionally. Mm -hmm. And uh, the fluids in the body start to gather toward the heart center. And so there are physical things that go on during that time, but also mental and emotional things that go on. And so uh, you can read or be present to the person basically according to whatever they, their tradition or, or whatever they're wanting at that point in time. Yeah. Michael, let, let's take a pivot a little bit and talk about um, the connection between meditation and brain health. There's so much science exploding on this front right now. And I think it's given a real boost to people's perception of um, these traditions. Maybe sure. you can speak to that. Yeah. Um, well, in terms of meditation and brain health, you have to be crazy to want to meditate. So <laughs> well, obviously, if we're just, you know, comparing it to dying and stripping yeah. ourselves away, but <laughs> it seems to be offering some solace. Who would want to do that? <laughs> right. right. <laughs> you know, um, well, there's a term called neuroplasticity that is bandied about these days in, in psychology and neurobiology. And the word plastic actually means adaptable. That's why something that's plastic, you know, you can form it into anything. Okay, so plastic means adaptable. So neuroplasticity means how adaptable is our mind, you know? And what they've discovered is that, and they've been doing experiments with people who are long-term meditators and short-term meditators and so on. Uh, one thing that they did in, uh, I think the University of Wisconsin, they split this group into three non-meditators, people who had just learned and long-term meditators. And they, they did these tests with all of the little electrodes on the brain and all of this sort yeah. of thing. One of the things that they discovered is that short-term meditators had a lot of anticipatory stress when anything ever happened. And then when it happened, they worried about it afterwards. And then people who just learned meditation, like only for a month, their anticipatory stress went way down. And then when the stressor hit, it went up, but then it decayed very quickly. The long-term meditators have no anticipatory stress, not, wor not worrying about a thing before in hand, right. and no worrying about it afterwards. And so there are measurable effects in the brain and brain development uh, from the act of meditation. So it's nice to see East and West kind of coming together on that. Yeah. We're going to take the leap and uh, dive into quantum physics. Um, there's been some 
you know, an explosion of interest and in this topic, and then also how quantum physics relates to spirituality. Um, so I was wondering if you could provide some examples of what quantum physics is and how it's connected to spiritual concepts. Wow. <laughs> in, in the most accessible way you can. <laughs> I know. Yeah, and you got really a, dumb down. <laughs> you've got a, you, you have a nerdy scholar on your hand. You're, you're in trouble, right? <laughs> so um, let's just say simply stated, quantum physics says matter doesn't matter. Matter oh, well, is, I think we can end right there. There you go. Matter <laughs> is energy. Right. Okay. And uh, that energy is organized into the world we see based on the perceiver. In other words, how we see the world, you know, the world that we see is more about how we see it rather than how it actually is. And so in quantum physics, there is this idea that energy is really funny. It's, it's always shape-shifting and it expresses itself as either wave or particle. Okay. And what they discovered is that our, our brain structure experiences it the same way. Uh, an example would be, well, like if you were sitting down by a stream and had a really beautiful experience, you know, and somebody you know, ask you, well, how was your experience? You know, you have a hard time putting words to it because you're experiencing it kind of as the wave. But if you would sit down and write about it, then it would be particle. And so um, what they're understanding about neuropsychology is that, that our original mind experiences this intersection of wave and particle when we're experiencing kind of right brain stuff and spaciousness is like wave and left brain stuff it's more like particle and so that's just one example that buddha was talking about subatomic particles 2600 years ago he actually gave talks on partless atoms <laughs> and how it is that our mind and the filters in our mind create our reality and so there's this intersection between you know quantum physics, quantum mechanics, and and uh, our neurology. So. Wow, Michael, I want to um, I want to circle back to something we were talking about earlier in the podcast, where you're we talking about um, how time is also on that that wave that we were you were just mm -hmm. talking about, and that we're in this degenerative time. Have you? Um, I mean, in your perception, ha has that been something that you've seen he yourself here in like opening in Ben, like 10, 20 years ago, would you have said things were on the uptick or were they downtick? How, how long do you, uh, <laughs> have we been on this degenerative slide? And, uh, and then maybe just to be uplifting when this degenerative slide might stop and, and we could look forward to an uptick. <laughs> well, first of all, the word degenerating sounds terrible. It just means that things are, you know, things grow and then things die. Things, things um, arise, things fall. And that's just a movement of things. It's just a natural movement of, of the world 
always. Um, but I'm also a geology nerd, so I've seen these long eons of ups and downs. Mm -hmm. And so if our mind is settled and recognizes impermanence, and then we don't even worry about it too much. You know, in terms of timeline, sometimes they, they say it was after World War II, kind of the degenerating time cycle started. Okay. And you see this in Indian traditions and so on too, um, you know, East Indian traditions and Native American traditions. They have prophecy cycles that are very similar. And they say, this is the particular era where we're doing this. And it's not like a it's not like a downer. It just means that these things happen. Uh, and, uh, and so you know, for us living here, it's just a matter of how we adapt. And so in a degenerating time cycle, we need to be more real with how, how we're treating the planet, you know, how we're treating each other. Uh, it's just kind of a, a constant, we need to have concentrated effort now. And then it'll, it'll move back again, but who knows? Who knows when? You know. Yeah, it, it feels a little like a downer. I just got to <laughs> for someone who's not that enlightened. Uh, it, it feels like things are coming apart a little bit. And, and, I, yeah. and it's like that dying process is not, not that great right now. Yeah, well, well, look at the mountains that we love, right? Yeah. We, we ski and hike in them and, and they're so beautiful. But how did they get here? Oh, big, there was an explosion. Big, you know. Now, if we were out skiing or hiking and on this mountain and we went like, wow, this is here in this moment, but it'll probably be gone again. So in this moment, I can really, really thoroughly enjoy. I can thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy it. And so dealing with, the, with these kind of down cycles has to do with how can we stay where we are and open ourselves to the level of love of which we're capable. Uh, and then, then we don't worry too, too much about timelines. You know, as a matter of fact, they say in the teachings that degenerating times um, have the greatest opportunity for us to wake up hmm. and to overcome our obstacles to loving each other. And they, many, many texts talk about that. So, well, it does seem, I mean, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on for this podcast is because I, I, I was stunned by the kind of data that I've been seeing about people searching for new spiritual outlets, the increase in, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I, if someone had told me before the pandemic that viral yoga, virtual yoga was going to be a thing, I, <laughs> I would have laughed. I was like, well, no one's going to do that kind of thing via Zumba or right. Zoom. But they're they're going crazy. So mm -hmm. it, maybe that's maybe that's what we're seeing. Yeah, I think so. You know, whenever whenever we experience change and loss, it makes us reassess our life. And now we're just experiencing kind of on a planetary level. You know, you can't really avoid it. No. <laughs> <laughs> and so so during those times, we have the greatest opportunity to basically get over ourselves. Sure. You know, and. Uh, Michael, we are uh, unfortunately running out of our, mm -hmm. our time here. Is there, um, 
anything you'd like to say to viewers or any any parting advice as we conclude the podcast? Um, I think the only thing I would say is that, um, you know, the Dalai Lama once defined Buddhism as um, if you can help people, help them. If you cannot, at least do no harm. And so most of the traditions express something like that. And so during this time, the I think the real importance of really listening to each other and especially listening to the people that we don't think we agree with. You know, listening to the unknown, getting a little bit more comfortable with that. And then what happens on that deep listening is that our heart opens. We have greater empathy and greater love and compassion for, for all beings equally. We don't separate out people. We don't have all this divisive language. We, we are kind of like naturally inclusive. If left to, if we weren't so full of ourselves, we would be naturally inclusive, <laughs> you know? And uh, the Buddhist path, and it's not unique, but the Buddhist path is about kind of getting over our self-absorbed points of view uh, so that we open um, to everyone you know, according to our capability. You know, that's not gonna happen like immediately, but you know, according to our capability. And it begins where we are, you know, your family, uh, your coworkers, um, you know, your Zoom fans and friends, <laughs> you know, um, where, start where you are and then find, be open to uh, some kind of thing that supports you, whether it's yoga, meditation, whatever, prayer, um, contemplative prayer, whatever form. Right. Well, Michael, thanks for sake of taking the time to be with us. It was a really unique and special podcast. I appreciate your time. Yeah. yeah well, I appreciate it. No. <laughs> and, uh, I think you're doing a really good thing. I, I didn't quite get the bend don't break title at the beginning. Oh, come on. You, that, that, that's right up your alley. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I think my literal mind was good enough. I absolutely loved it. <laughs> I think it's like one of the best things. And I tell people, have you seen the bend, don't break thing? Or what are you talking about? I said, go to that <laughs> online. It's wonderful. And, and so thank you for doing this. It's, it's one of the things that'll help to heal this planet. So. Thank you. We hope so. We've been, uh, Laurel and I have been having a great time. So. Yeah. Yeah. Thank Thanks, you. Michael. Oh, you're welcome. All righty.